You are now listening to the High Def Performance Podcast, hosted by Mitch Harb and Zach Smith. So we got Dr. Kleiner, owner of High Performance Nutrition LLC, a consulting firm in Mercer Island, right, right up the street from us. Uh, she's the high performance nutrition consultant to the storm, consulted uh, many other professional teams, the rain, Seattle rain, Seattle Seahawks, Mariners, Thunderbirds, Sonics, RIP Sonics, uh, <laughs> the, the Cleveland Browns, Cavaliers, Miami Heat, Olympians elite athletes we are pumped to bring this information to you guys she coaches all these different high performers and can tell you everything you need to know nutrition wise so welcome to the podcast thank you so much it is it is just a pleasure and an honor to be here and to see your faces yeah, yeah, no, this is this is really cool that, that we could do this. Although we're 15 minutes away, we we still could, <laughs> could make it happen video wise. Um, so Your I mean, elbow bump. Yeah, yeah. there you go. <laughs> this is true social distancing. <laughs> so right off the bat, you know what what is it or what was it that drew you to to working with athletes and and high performance like this? So. Um, you know, it goes back a lot of years. I was a pre-Title IX girl growing up in Cleveland, Ohio, and there were no sports for me, literally, very different than out here on the West Coast, where um, there at least were outdoor sports for women. You know, we read the story of Billie Jean King and how she could play tennis, even though there wasn't necessarily sport in her public school. But in the middle of the country, in the Midwest, there really was none of that. Um, and because we didn't have year round outdoor sports, there was nothing you could do. And, and I had um, the only option for me as a varsity sport was, uh, was, was field hockey, uh, which really wasn't an interest for me. Um, and as a little girl, I became a dancer, a modern dancer. And I went all the way to New York and trained uh, at the Graham studio as a student uh, in early high school. And um, then decided that really my path and my journey was not going to be as a dancer. There was a lot of complication to it. And so I came home, I went to a very small liberal arts college in Ohio, Hiram College. And at that point, it was now 1975 and Title IX had passed. And so now there were sports available I could play. I wasn't on the teams, but it, it was equally available to me to play tennis, to run, to do all kinds of things. Plus I was out in the middle of rural Ohio and getting mm -hmm. on your bike and riding forever or running forever <laughs> was wonderful. And at the same time, I did teach some dance while I was there and I was working, um, I was in biology and working with a local farmer who was one of the earliest organic farmers and taught a bunch of us how to, how to grow organically and we um, following organic methods. And so I got really interested in food and close to the ground and vegetarianism and, and, and just movement and food seemed so natural as far as health. And so at that time, there wasn't any concept of real health care in medical care. And, mm -hmm. and so I thought, well, I have to become a physician. Um, and fortunately, I had a wonderful uh, uh, friend's dad who was Dean of Admissions of the medical school at Case Western Reserve University. And I went to apply and he said, Susan, we would love to have you in medical school. You won't learn anything about what you're interested in. Mm. You're interested in health. We teach people how to treat disease. Go talk to the Department of Nutrition. Mm. And I had no idea that nutrition was a whole field. I thought it was just a hobby. And <laughs> so it, it just immediately, it, it became, I want to study nutrition and exercise. And I got to the chairman of the department at Case Western Reserve, which is a 
a, a storied department, the very first program in public health nutrition in the country. Oh, wow. And I uh, talked to the late Dr. Jan Neville, who said to me, there is no such thing as a field of nutrition and exercise. And I said, well, I know they're doing something in New York at Columbia University, and I know they're doing something in California at, uh, at Berkeley, but I can't afford to go there. I have to live at my parents' house to do grad school. So can you help me study this? And they said yes, and they supported all my ideas. I ultimately connected with the very famous sports medicine department at the Cleveland Clinic um, and with, with just unbelievable docs there. And, um, and that was kind of the dawning of, of my career as the field was being pioneered. Sports nutrition, when I started, the term didn't exist. My degree, my PhD is in nutrition and human performance. Mm. So the term sports nutrition was born during the early 80s when you weren't born yet. And you were, you were the pioneer of this. <laughs> well, there were about a dozen of us who were bona fide nutritionists, mm -hmm. right? So in the field of exercise science, they were trying to look at diet, but they didn't understand dietary methodology. And so it was really poor research. Um, what the, the only good research had come out of the military during the 1940s mm -hmm. and, and the Minnesota hygiene labs and the work done on the needs of military recruits in, in boot camp and out in the, in the yeah. field. And yeah. so those studies were very good. And then we had about a decade or two in between that was terrible and, and useless. And then um, by the 19, mid 1980s, as nutrition departments began to do the science of diet and exercise, driving the methodology, we started to get very good research beginning. And there were probably a dozen of us practicing dietitians out in the field uh, around the country that knew each other. And I would say we were definitely the pioneers of, of the field. And most of us are still working today. <laughs> that's, that's, that's awesome. Yeah, that's awesome. I mean, that's cool that you were, you were kind of at the starting line. Cause now, you know, I did, I did my undergraduate degree in exercise science and there was a, a, a decent amount of the curriculum was including nutrition and, mm -hmm. and nutrition science, especially around sports. Um, so now that's kind of like the standard part of the curriculum for exercise science when, you know, you, you were kind of just start starting that out, the connection between the two, which is really cool. Yeah. It's exciting to, to have these big programs that are partnered where you've got nutrition scientists and exercise scientists, sometimes in the same person, yeah, right? Yeah. People with dual degrees um, or otherwise partnering. And, and I, I just, I love the interdisciplinary part of it and the partnership in the creativity and the, and the brainstorming that goes on in, how can we how can we push the walls of performance further? Because in that within that research, we find in very important facts that are important for everyday health. And that yeah. was the draw for me is can you be super well, both yeah. pushing out the walls of performance for an athlete, but how does that impact the everyday person? Um, yeah. And and in those days in the 1980s, what fascinated me was muscle, and nobody was really looking yet at the nutritional needs of strength training and muscle building. And I was introduced to lifting by a competitive female bodybuilder who offered a class at a you know it's the old you know, smelly lifting gyms where you went in in your sweats. And I was, she and I were the only two females in the place. And, you know, she was definitely juiced up and we, you know, and, and she was an amazing teacher and very passionate about what she did. And I said, I tried to find information. How do I, she's telling me how she's eating and that where she gets her information, I thought there's got to be some science on this. And yeah. there just wasn't, you know, and that was what 
began sort of my journey into the research of of nutrition strength and power very cool yeah and and i like the i like that concept of of like what what could be applied to athletes at the highest end can also be applied to the average person and that's kind of how we take our approach with you know we work with we with high level athletes but we also work with just regular high performer CEOs and business professionals. And we try to treat everybody like the athlete, that high end service that athletes get. So, so we love that. Um, you know, when you're, when you're looking at, at athletes, you must find, and, and just people in general, you must find a lot of common problems that you see. What would like just tactically off the bat, what are one, two, one or two things that you typically see with, with athletes that you, you find that you add with everybody? You know, is there, is there a couple common things that, that you uh, have people start with? Everybody. And I mean, you know, everybody who walks into my office needs to eat more. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, and so to be clear, the people that I work with are not people who are um, nutritionally devastated, right? They're not mm -hmm. obese. Um, they may be slightly overweight, depend, you know, not just for their sport, but according to health parameters, depending mm -hmm. on where they are in their life. Mm -hmm. As you said, CEOs, uh, you know, uh, airline pilots, uh, you know, people who are in top salesmen, people who live real lives and want to achieve peak performance in their lives, both, I say, in, in, the, in the courtroom, the boardroom or the bedroom, wherever yeah. you want to achieve peak performance. And so, so I may, I do see people who are not um, using their body to make their money, right? They're not elite athletes, but yeah. um, the 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 so so the they are typically have a pretty high nutritional IQ already when they get to me they have to have found me you yeah, know right. and so um so in those cases typically uh, no one is eating enough and my female athletes you know, who who really truly are competitive athletes uh, all the way to the the female um, highly competitive or recreationally competitive fitness-minded individual, I am adding anywhere from 800 to 1500 calories wow. a day, a day on their training days by the time, you know, we don't do it in one lump sum, but yeah. um, it's a, it's a, they're hugely under fueling and, and the men, um, some not not as universally as the women, but and and it didn't ever used to be like this with men, but it is today. Men didn't used to restrict on the whole the way they do now. Um, there have been huge changes in dietary patterns in the world of athletes and and um, fitness-minded individuals, and so we. Uh, we all find, because we talk with each other, yes, we find that everyone almost is under fueling to some level. Um, and uh, although with men, it may be smaller amounts or inappropriate fueling on, on different days or a misunderstanding of, of when to eat less and when to eat more, um, all the way to needing another 2000 calories a day. You know, yeah. I mean, it goes, it, it runs the gamut. So, so fuel um, is number one, two, and three. Yeah, <laughs> nice. Uh, and then I'm hoping that we have just been living through a reset of carbohydrate restriction. Something about COVID-19 has dramatically changed people's attitude about carbohydrate. <laughs> And, and consuming carbohydrate. And I'm hoping that it is the recognition that you don't feel very good when you don't eat any carbohydrate or extremely limited amounts of carbohydrate in your diet, that, that mentally, emotionally, you're not feeling as well. And I think that's what people recognized as well as limiting immune functions. So, so mm -hmm. I would say those two are top. And then there's certainly many other things that we see. Of yeah. course, of course. Now, you know, and I think that's huge. We talk with a lot of uh, high school teams too. And that's what I'm constantly talking to these kids about is like, man, you're probably practicing 
three times a day going to 10 different sports. Like there's no way the school lunch and, you know, like all of that is getting you enough, enough calories, especially at that growing age. Um, but you know, on top of the high school athletes and even the, the pros, I'm sure you've dealt with a lot of times like that motivation, that lack of motivation or, or thinking that nutrition isn't really important. How do you, how do you, what are some tips to guiding people to actually taking this seriously? You know, we work with some pro athletes, like go to Chick-fil-A all the time. Like don't think anything of it. How, how, what are, what are some tips that you would recommend for that? So, um, you know, I step back a little bit from it and we talk about how you accomplish goals and how they got to where they are, right? They didn't, you know, step off a train and stumble into the NFL, mm -hmm. right? I mean, they just didn't do that. Even if it wasn't their plan that was designed, somebody made a plan for them. Mm -hmm. And so we know that whether it's your finances, if you shoot from the hip, you're never going to save money. <laughs> um, if it's your career path without a plan, you won't get to where you want to go. If it's an academic plan, even if it's just finishing the today's course um, for kids who are who just got booted out of school and now they're all online and the plan that was all I have to do is go to class mm -hmm. isn't going to work anymore. Um, the only way they're going to succeed is to have a plan. And so nutrition is the same. If, if you're just going by, well, I eat when I'm hungry and when I'm hungry, I decide what I'm going to eat. And, and that means whatever isn't getting up and running across the counter on its own, <laughs> yeah. you know, then that's not that, that probably, that may be a plan, you know, that may be your plan, but it's unlikely that it's going to be successful. Mm -hmm. And so when you want to get from A to really Z, if you're looking to get to the NFL or the NBA, or MLB or any any elite professional sports, it is such a vast minority of people who get there that if you don't do exactly everything required to get there, and then you still may not get there, even yeah. if you do everything right, yeah. you can be certain you won't get there if you don't do everything right. And so that's the conversation. And so they have a, they have their skills coach, you know, they've got their, their drills, they've got their personal training, they, they, they've got their, you know, their sports science person that may be working with them on movement, they, you know, all these people working with them. Nutrition, I'm their coach, yeah. right? Yep. I'm the nutrition coach and think of me as that. That's what I am. I'm not your dietitian. Yeah. Because even though I am very proud of my registered dietitian moniker, I uh I think that people who in the sports world who are used to coaches need to see me as a coach. And so so those are really important. And the last piece that is the easiest for people to begin to do conceptually, like we say, eat more, eat carbs. That's not detailed enough. Variety. Variety is the number one thing I try and teach as the beginning, as the foundation of everything is variety. I think that's so important too. I, you know, I liked, I like when you talk about the plan, cause you know, we talk about that with a lot of people as well as uh, like as far as the gym, you know, how many people walk into the gym without a plan? You just end up wandering around trying to find pieces of equipment where you could be in the gym for 45 minutes. You end up being there for two hours and literally it's just cause you didn't have a plan. Um, and I also like that second piece that you talked about variety. Cause I was a collegiate track and field athlete. And for a while I almost had three meals a day that were chicken, rice and broccoli. And that's all I ate. And, and that I, I know, you know, now that it wasn't good, but that's all I knew 
back when I was a collegiate athlete, it just kind of blows my mind that I didn't have anyone else helping me at that level, even though I was a division one athlete. Um, so I think that's, that's a really important tip as well. Um, and kind of along the lines of, you know, people not eating enough calories and variety and all that stuff. I just want to hear your take on, you know, I'm not sure if you're familiar with Dwayne Johnson, the rock, you know, he's, he's not an athlete, but he's, he's a very high performance guy, right? He's, he's a a very successful business person, movie actor, and he's got his cheat meals that he does on Sunday where he'll eat just a, a crazy amount of calories, big, ridiculous meals. What is your thoughts on like, does it help mentally or, you know, is that like the binge is not a good idea? Um, I just want to hear your thoughts around cheat meals. So I stay away from negativity. Uh, I, I build in all the things that my athletes can do yeah. and give them the freedom. I give them the knowledge and the freedom to choose. This is your plan, right? And so here's where, and depending on the time and the goal, there can be more or less margin for error, right? Mm-hmm. If we're trying to make uh, 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 an international physique competition, there's as we're getting down to the to the day, right? I mean, there's a pretty narrow margin for error, mm-hmm. but but in many cases, you know, someone who you know who weighs what the rock weighs, right? Yeah. I mean they got some margin to work with. Um, and so I, I, I particularly dislike the concept of cheating, binging. Those are words that feed negativity. We don't like cheaters, right? Mm -hmm. It's not okay to have been cheating in baseball, right? We don't like people who cheat. So when we call ourselves a cheater, there is a whole host of negative self-talk that surrounds that, that carries on for the whole week. And that certainly impacts our, I think, sense of self-worth. Now the research shows that women are more affected by what we what you're talking about a cheat meal or a cheat day in falling off their program mm. than men are men um in in the the bit of research that's been done on this men more easily go back to their plan women less so well, it can knock them off their plan completely and yeah. um whether it's emotional you know i i don't i don't think anyone knows why there may be women out there saying, well, I know why, because I think I'm a, you know, I, I was allowed to have this cheat meal, but now I was bad. Mm-hmm. Right. And so, so for me in my practice, I, I, I stay away from words like avoid, <laughs> restrict all the, the negative connotation words and cheat and binge are really high on that list. And so the point is, if you can do this, basically the trainer who's telling you you're allowed to have a cheat meal, well, then why is it cheating? It's just built in. Yeah, it's like a surplus meal. Right, let's just build it in. It's kind of like a weird marketing thing to me to say, you come to me, you can eat your cheat meal. It's built in. You can have a cheat meal. Well, it's built into my program, but I don't make you feel like a loser when you do it. And yeah. so, um, so, so that's my attitude on it. Now, can it work? Yes, of course, because you built something in. You ask people. It's the classic way that you consult with people. What are your favorite foods? What do you think you're going to miss the most? And and you look at where you think that could fit in. What days would it feel best to you? Everyone doesn't want their cheat day to be on their day that they're not training right right? Mm -hmm. they may want it on their hardest day in fact that's probably the day it fits in the best yeah yeah and so you put in the biggest effort you you get more choices yeah and that that is something that i've heard you say is which fits in is never under fuel your training so that would probably be a best case. And, and I remember in the book, you were saying that is like, 
the day when you should do that is on those those hard training days or like right after right right after you train and now you're kind of uh, supporting that so i wanted to just kind of have you um go into a little more depth about that never under fuel your training and then and then talk a little bit about the importance you mentioned about carbohydrates as well so even when you are in a in a uh, a fat loss phase right if if you care about your training and i think people listening to you care about their performance if your performance matters versus exercising to just shrink down right that you're not a you don't care about performance you're you're not a, a someone who typically looks at exercise as something that you look forward to it's something that you it's kind of that yoke that you wear on your back when you decide, oh, I better lose weight. I guess I have to start exercising. And all you do is you use exercise as what I call, I, I use this term very broadly that it's just junk miles, right? Uh, it's just calorie burning time for you. Yeah. You have no other goal to your exercise than calorie burning. Well, then you can do moderate intensity exercise for hours. And it doesn't matter if you fueled yourself beforehand or not. It doesn't matter if you get a training effect. None of that matters to you. And so, so that's where you are. And so whatever you do with your diet, go for it. You know, that's yeah. not my world, right? Yeah. I'm yeah. not in the diet world. But if performance matters to you, even in a cutting phase or a fat burning phase, fat loss phase, then don't waste your workout time by underfueling it. You can reduce your calories and perhaps your some of your carbohydrate choices at other times during the day. And we know your calorie reduction when you are a regular exerciser does not need to be this huge amount. 300 to 400 calories gives you a good a good weight loss amount on a weekly basis, 300, 400 calories a day reduction. So decrease, decrease your calories at another time during the day. Prior to your workout, fuel yourself. If you are doing a high intensity workout, fuel yourself, make sure that you're getting at least carbs. And really that's all you need right before a workout. You want something that's going to easily empty from your stomach so that you can fully train, but you don't feel like you're too full to train. Um, that's where fast carbs play a role, um, not in the rest of your day, but mm -hmm. around your training. If you wanna go fast, you need fast carbs to do that. And, and then um, if you need car, you know, intrafuel, if you're doing hours and hours of exercise, you may need to refuel during. And then afterwards, if you're not getting right to a really robust meal, you should recover. And so, so fully fuel that training so that you maximize that time. Now, if you're the person, like you said, who goes to the gym and, and talks for 45 minutes and trains for 45 minutes, well, I don't, you know, maybe you're working hard, maybe you're not, it's kind of mm -hmm. hard to tell. But if you're someone and you know that you are doing a high intensity training, uh, you know, 70 plus percent of your work capacity when you're training, then you need carbohydrate to fuel that training. And you don't want to fatigue halfway through your workout because you've run out of fuel. You want to fatigue at the end of your workout because you maxed out your muscle yeah. potential. So if you run out of fuel, then you may as well just stop because the rest of the training is not giving you a training effect, right? Yeah. So that's why never underfuel your training, but do uh, you can decrease calories and certainly maybe reduce some of those carbs if you're putting them all around your training and you're in a fat loss um, phase put them around a little more, you know, bump them up around your training if you haven't been using carbs for training. 
Yeah. No, I like that. I think it's so important to, to like nutrient timing and stuff like that. And to even go back to the rock, I saw him posting, which was interesting. He does fasted cardio and then he goes, eats breakfast and then he goes and lifts weights. So he fuels himself. He does a fasted cardio session, but then he eats carbohydrate, be able, right. be able to improve that performance. So he's definitely obviously got a lot of help with what he's doing as well. Um, but on, on along the lines of athletes and high performers, you know, people end up inevitably getting injured in the gym. And that's what like with high def we do, we combine physical therapy, training and nutrition. Um, so we, you know, we work with some more athletes to help with like injury prevention or even injury healing. Is there anything specific that you do with a, with an injured athlete or someone who's going through like some type of chronic condition around their training is there anything you like to add in typically for somebody to help them heal a little bit more efficiently well it, it depends on on the injury is it a soft tissue injury is it a hard tissue injury um uh is it a contusion you know what what's really happened to them someone who flies off their bike you know yeah riding down a mountain um you know it is multiple things um, we can, you know, I can give you an example of, um, uh, the, uh, high profile athlete and what, what we did with her. So, um, during the WNBA season, um, uh, last season or this, I can't remember if it was our championship season, 2018, or it was 2019, um, Sue Bird, and, and it's not uncommon, uh, as you know, in basketball to end up with whiplash, right? It just is not all that uncommon, that fall, that when you see them flat out fall, there's often whiplash that happens, or or you were in a move and someone knocks you and you're, you know, you're next. Well, anyway, so Sue uh, got whiplash, and... Um, we used uh, and uh, you know I, I there are specific products that i do like to use um products that i use are always uh as much as possible evidence-based you know science on the product itself as well as always third-party lab tested right mm -hmm. for purity yeah. and yeah. so um at that time i used a uh uh, a product that contains a very high quality collagen peptide with um, red spinach and, you know, all of the sort of high anthocyanin uh, and nitrate products. Um, I have found that, that that for soft tissue injury, the, the, you know, and, and again, you know, I, I don't need to, to brand out there, um, mm -hmm. but, yeah. but look for products. I think it's not all collagen. It's not every product it's, but certain products and certain combinations, I think, you know, the, the, the products, whether it's, it's beets or, or, uh, New Zealand blueberry or black New Zealand blackberry, um, uh, these really help in, in nutrient delivery to the, to the damaged tissue mm -hmm. at the same time help total immune function and i think certain collagen products have some good data there's some very interesting data on msm it's uh, the only product in the us is opti msm um actually worldwide it's the the human you know product made here in the us um some you know sulfur containing so those are products and then the same with the food, right? And so, so if it's important to get sulfur in, well, then it's broccoli, cauliflower, Brussels sprouts, cabbage, um, those brassica family vegetables that stink so bad, that's the sulfur. And we need that. It's critical in the body for healing. Uh, and then all the variety of bold colored produce, fruits and vegetables, mm -hmm. those become very important. Certainly protein becomes very important. Um, and so, uh, you know, vitamin D, calcium, making sure that all the nutrients, and this is where a wide variety of food, but certain supplementation. Um, and, and then finally, and you may have heard my talks on whole grains. Um, if you have any kind of injury, 
in the body and you have systemic inflammation already, chronic systemic inflammation, whether it's in your gums or in your gut, right? Periodontal disease or in your gut, that inflammatory response that is chronic and systemic in your body is going to push the inflammatory response and inhibit healing everywhere in your body. And so eating whole grains, high fiber, is critically important to the maintenance of a healthy gut and a healthy gut biome, which is the direct manager of the connection between your body inside and outside. And, and so keeping that gut healthy, and I may say your mouth as well, gums and athletes um, have high levels of periodontal disease, just you know, a whole nother topic, but it's connected. Um, that inflammatory response um, is something I work on all the time. And we can reduce um, the, the number of days to get back on the court or in the field or on the trail by maintaining a very high level of health in the body all the time. Mm -hmm. Yep. I love that. And that's what I was going to kind of say going back to the the cheat meal stuff is you know it's probably a good idea obviously you can find those times to, to have those certain treats but probably a good idea right for all these athletes listening especially the younger ones like to make sure your diet's pretty solid all around do you agree a hundred percent and um one of the things that i associate with cheat meals and then seeing a downward slide over time is, you know, I wrote a book years ago that's actually all of a sudden people have found it again called The Good Mood Diet. We know that there is a profound neurobiology of food. And so on the day that you don't exercise, which is a mood lifter for everyone universally, even if you hate exercise, you feel better after you've done it. <laughs> um, on the day that's your rest day, now you choose to eat all the foods that we know decrease mood. You know, ultra-processed foods, high in pro-inflammatory fats and pro-inflammatory, highly processed um, sugars and flours, white flour, sugar, all of that, that pro-inflammatory processed increases risk for depression, right? And 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 a sort of this, so now you've eliminated what makes you feel good and you've added in what makes you feel bad in a pretty short order. And it's not a surprise then that maybe for the next couple of days you feel like crap, right? Yeah. And, and, and you go, oh, what the hell, this program isn't working for me anyways. Mm -hmm. And you're done. So, so all of those things, yes. And so when we work in, what are your favorite foods? What are the things that you're going to really miss that you can't have? Uh, you know, here in Seattle, many of our athletes love the, the you know, it's like a, a, an ice cream sandwich cookie of Bluebird, you know, <laughs> ice cream sandwich cookies is a, is a big, a big um, uh, reward. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's funny. Um. It's not every day and it may, it's not every week, right? So um, they, they know that, and, and they know if I'm on a championship run, the last thing I'm gonna do is put anything in my body that would be like someone sticking their foot up, a foot out and tripping me on the right. court or on the field. Like, why would I do that to myself? A self-inflicted injury. Mm -hmm. Alcohol is the same right? Alcohol yeah. is just a total self-inflicted injury during a season for an athlete. Yep. Yeah. And, and that, that's funny because that's what I was going to ask is to to talk about that good mood diet. I love that um, connecting that, you know, because you, you, you can kind of know once you start to be aware, like this makes me feel good. This makes me not feel so well. And once you can link those two, I think it becomes easier to eat that way because you're like, I don't want to feel that like depressed. So I'm going to eat these foods. Can you talk a little bit more about uh, brain fitness and, and how those two are 
connected and, and what, what would be like a couple suggestions that maybe an athlete could add to their, to their diet? So, um, the, the first thing is understanding neurotransmitters, um, and, and this connection to inflammation in the brain as well. So it's those two concepts that become very strong. So data are that diets, uh, lower than 40% of calories from carbohydrates can increase the risk of depression in depression-prone individuals. So we live in the Pacific Northwest where it's gray most of the time. Unbelievably, during all this stay at home, we've had some remarkably sunny spring days, right? I mean, it's just like over the top. It's so nice outside. I know. Um, <laughs> so... Uh, but so we know that here in the Pacific Northwest and really, you know, the, life is just stressful. And so lowering your total carbohydrate intake very low increases the risk of depression. I'm not saying one individual person is going to become depressed, but the incidence or risk increases of just not feeling your best. We know that diets that are lower than 25 to 30% fat, total fat from calories, can decrease um, the ability to cope with stress and anxiety. Wow. Um, you know, maybe that person with road rage should have a little more olive oil. You know, so, <laughs> so um, those two things are very, very big, and they are usually the things that are decreased in the diet right away when yeah. people are trying to lose weight you decrease carbs and you decrease fat so mm -hmm. so understanding why that concept of 40 30 30 um can make you feel really good really good from wherever you were on a really high protein maybe little lower fat and very low carb diet it's not magic it's just that your basic physiology works this way. Why? So carbohydrate is required for tryptophan to move across the blood-brain barrier in abundance to be the building block of serotonin in your brain. And serotonin is not the only important neurotransmitter, but it is the most abundant, feel-good neurotransmitter working all day long. And it makes you feel alert and 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 in a better mood during the day in the evening we have all different connections with with uh serotonin and it actually helps you get ready to relax and sleep um so so in order for tryptophan the amino acid to cross the blood-brain barrier in abundance you must have carbohydrate around it makes it creates this whole cascade of biochemistry that allows for that. Um, so it doesn't mean sugar because right. uh, we know that as an ingredient, sugar makes you feel really good, really fast. And this is why, aside from the opiate pathway, mm -hmm. um, you get an immediate burst of serotonin in the brain. And then the opiate pathway reminds you that you get that immediate burst and you want to keep having more and more sugar. Mm -hmm. Ultimately, we know that sugar as a highly refined carbohydrate is pro-inflammatory. It increases the risk, as I said, of periodontal disease. What's going on in your gums is what's reflected what's going on in the rest of your body. It is the canary in the coal mine, so to mm -hmm. speak. And so high sugar intakes ultimately increase cortisol production, increase stress response. As you increase stress response, you start to break down more proteins what happens to your ability to make serotonin? It's not very high. And so you have to keep eating more and more and more of these highly refined carbohydrates, and they are promoting the inflammatory response along with it. And so, and, and that means your body is breaking down and allows for bacteria at, in different areas to cause that inflammation because it feeds off of the in the the broken down 
particles of the tissues that are being destroyed from the inflammatory response. It really is quite a cycle. Well, in your brain, then um, you now have uh, you know all this inflammation everywhere. And if you are not eating the proper fats, meaning fish oils in particular, fish oils help your brain um, brain cells stay what we call plastic or fluid and they easily move so that your uh, chemical and electrical pulses that move from one neuron to the next in the brain so that you can keep thinking and feeling at your best um, when those are gone when you don't have enough fat is so important to the structure of the brain that your body will replace it with any fat but those fats promote inflammation and harden the brain cell. And so then you can't think as well, you don't feel as good, your cognitive processes, your emotional state all start to decrease and in fact, increase your risk of degenerative diseases of the brain. Mm. So, so we've got fish oils, we've got whole grains, um, uh, whole foods containing good carbohydrates, you know, the book is out by the former FDA commissioner, I think Kessler, you know, slow carbs. Um, it's a good way to think of it. You know, they're much slower to digest. So uh, starchy vegetables, whole grains um, um, and beans, those are all good sources. Vitamin D is critically important also for production of uh, serotonin. Uh, both in the gut as well as in the brain. Um, and so so those are, are, are critically important, getting in good proteins. If you can drink milk, uh, uh, milk protein and milk itself is, is uniquely a feel-great food. It's a combination of uh, protein and carbohydrate, which feeds your muscles. It's the tryptophan and the carbohydrate to go into the brain. It's high in vitamin D. Uh, and, and we have... So many other good factors in there. In fact, lactose helps with absorption of, of calcium. Um, whey protein is high in other factors, um, bioactive proteins that also impact mood, lactoferrin and lactalbumin. So I know I'm going on and on here, but no, it's this is all really good stuff. Yeah, and keep keep going. Okay, so so people say to me, how can I know that I'm supposed to eat fish, eat nuts, eat blueberries, drink milk, um, eat flaxseed. That's a whole nother story. Um, you know, all of these, and flaxseed needs to be ground, by the way, or it comes out the way it went in whole. You don't yeah. get any yeah. benefits. So, um, you know, all these, <laughs> all these factors, how can I do that all in a day? That's the good mood diet. It shows you the amounts of what has, is evidence-based to make a difference in how you feel. And I have lists in there of foods um, that all have, like my feel great foods list. It's an, every food makes you feel good. Every mm -hmm. food in the whole world makes you feel good. Some more than others, some make you feel good really fast and then make you feel lousy, like alcohol, like sugars, um, but, um, highly processed foods, baked goods, that sort of thing. Um, but only some foods have real research behind them. And so I needed to make a feel great foods list for magazine publishers. Yeah. And so I just made a list of at that time, all the foods that have research data behind them. Now, we are many years later, 13 years since I published that book, the list has expanded, but it gives you a really good template for the kinds of foods that make you feel really good. And I have to say um, two things about the book. Number one, I was asked by my athletes for decades to write something for their moms, their aunts, their significant others, uh, you know, other people in their lives who were not athletes. Cause I had written Power Eating. It started in 1997, I think was the first publication. So you know, can I write something for, for people who they love that can learn how I put something together? And so um, that was my first foray into sort of something other than power eating, and they called it power eating light. So 
it has all of the foundation of sports nutrition science, but flipped on its head where the science I talk about is how you feel, not how you perform. Mm -hmm. And, and um, so all of that is also in the new power eating, which has two chapters on the brain and, and all of that. So it's, as you said, it, there it's both ends of the spectrum meet in the middle of the average person to the elite athlete applying to health. The second thing is that that book was really born out of working with a clinically depressed, very high level athlete um, before there was anything written about food and mood. And, um, and this athlete um, was, he was a pro athlete and no one in his corner was ever going to have him see a uh, any kind of, of mental health professional because mm -hmm. if it got out into the media, he could never be traded. Yeah. And that's the modus operandi of professional sports, yeah. right? Wow. And it is, it kills athletes, literally. Mm -hmm. um, and so I was brought in to work with him not nobody really understanding that he definitely was clinically depressed. Um, he'd also become an alcoholic. And, and so we, I became kind of his nutritional psychology therapist. Yeah. And, and it was obvious how poorly he was eating. And, and there's a long story. It's actually a published case study in an ACSM publication oh, wow. um, because it was so profound. And, and we, changed his diet and to his, and, and I threw everything in that I could find in the neuroscience literature about food and food components, because there was nothing in nutrition yet. And that was the beginning of the Good Mood Diet. I watched him turn around in a way that I could never have imagined um, for a period of time. Of course, ultimately it fell apart and he, had, he needed help, but, yeah. but yeah. for a year, he was he was amazing, and yeah. then we did a then we did a big test in one of the local newspapers here, yeah. and with people during the dark days of winter, and again saw these profound changes that I just never anticipated. So that was the birth of that book. Yeah, I love that. I mean, I think that's definitely two books we'll recommend to all of our athletes: is the Power Eating and and uh, and that Good Mood Diet book because it sounds like just such valuable information, or it is such valuable information for for athletes. I think it's just such an uh, under addressed topic too. And just you know, this kind of feeds into our last question here for you. We appreciate your time so much too. I know we don't want to take too much of your time, um, but you know, you mentioned uh, fish oil and vitamin D. So let's say you know we know that you know the, the actual eating the whole foods, that's the number one thing, right? But a lot of athletes are trying to get that next level of performance. So there's a lot of talk around, you know, supplementation and things like that. Uh, legally, you know, legal sports supplementation, uh, being important, you know, a lot of collegiate athletes, you know, highly tested, same with professionals. Is there anything else, or do you ever supplement the fish oil and the vitamin D or are there, are there any other supplements that you like typically recommend for people just, uh, at, from a performance standpoint? Yes, uh, absolutely. So, so um, my recommendation on how much fish to eat, people always ask me that is five fish meals a week of, of fatty fish, and you will get both your healthy fish oil and your vitamin D, but probably not still enough vitamin D and maybe not quite enough fish oil, depending on what your sport is and how big you are. Um, you know, I have a, a, a world champion downhill mountain bike racer, a woman that I work with who's pretty small, but she needs twice the dose of fish oil because she's just, she wakes up and, and you know, she'd love to have an oil can on her joints every morning, right? Cause mm -hmm. she's so sore. So um, we, we definitely supplement with fish oil. Um, and, and again, quality, quality, quality matters. Mm -hmm. um, uh, I definitely supplement with vitamin D once I know blood levels. And so I, I have every athlete test blood levels of vitamin D. I can tell you that nearly half the Seattle Storm players two years ago were frankly or marginally or frankly vitamin D deficient. Yeah. I mean, so low that I don't know how they were walking around. 
Yeah. And had no idea until we supplemented them and they were replenished how much more they could do. <laughs> wow. You know, so they could do amazing. They could do their practices. They were sluggish, but they didn't remember how good they used to feel. They've been feeling this way for a while. So, so vitamin D, get blood levels tested. I look at a minimum of 50, 50 nanograms per deciliter. That's my level. That's what I'm looking for. Um, and, you know, it's, we're looking at ideally within the sports world, 50 to 80 is, is the, the goal. Um, when I say frankly deficient, these girls were under 20. Mm-hmm. Um, so we, and they're all doing great now. And, and the team was incredibly supportive and, you know, so all kudos to everybody involved. Um, so we said fish oil, vitamin D in female athletes definitely do iron studies. Um, and, and iron supplementation may be important. Also looking at food sources and getting in the best array of food sources. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, I do a multivitamin mineral supplement. Uh, I do pretty typically uh, some kind of protein supplement, depending on the athlete. It may be whey protein. It may be a, a, a vegan protein, depending on the desire of the athlete. Uh, I use a carbohydrate supplement uh, with nearly every single athlete as a sports performance product. Um, and then there are other things. We, we use caffeine, we use theanine, um, you know, brain function supplements, things that can reduce rate of perceived exertion. Um, I have worked over the years with special forces. You know, there we're not trying to enhance performance. We're just trying to maintain performance. Mm-hmm. Yep. So it you don't have performance decrement, right? Yep. Out in the middle of a firefight, or or even our even our first responder firefighters and that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. So there's the the brain piece, um, carefully using that, and then um, hydration is critically important, and following hydration and looking at electrolytes critically important on every level, third-party laboratory testing. And one thing that does for you is while there can be crappy supplements that invest in third-party testing because they know they've got an audience to sell to, I'd say in some ways it's a good bar that if it, it it doesn't mean it's a bad supplement without third-party lab testing because maybe they don't have the funding yet to do it. But a company that invests in third-party lab testing, either Banned Substances Control Group, which is BSCG, Informed Sport, NSF for Sport, looking for those badges and making sure that the product you're taking is the one that's actually tested is very important. Mm-hmm. Um, may indicate a higher quality product. Yeah. Now, it's not a given, but it, and like I said, it's not an absolute. There are excellent products that don't have that yet, but many of the better products are investing in it. So, you know, it's it's helpful that way. And I do use, you know, some things that we think of as more food supplements. I said flaxseed. So ground flaxseed every day. Uh, you know, and, and in a, I have a dedicated coffee grinder in my house. I've been doing it for 30 years. Um, we know that even if you're not getting in all of the other fibers that you should be getting in, because maybe you're out somewhere and you can't get fresh produce and all, taking that big bag of ground flaxseed with you, that ground flaxseed is a, pre, we call it a prebiotic. It feeds your gut and uh, your your the biota in your gut and and will really help in decreasing um intestinal issues gotcha yeah no i think uh that's that's something that most people don't think of you see it all the time hear about it but i think that's a great thing that we can start to implement immediately and it's not super expensive from from what i i know of so that that's a great change but like, like Zach said, you know, we want to be respectful of your time and, and we truly appreciate it. Like it's, it's an honor, like 
pioneer the space to to have you connecting with us and and so close i i definitely hope we can uh connect in the future when we're allowed to to see people in person again um but before we let you go where where can we direct people i know go check out the new power eating go check out the good mood diet what what else what else can people so drskleiner.com so drskleiner.com is my website and you can find out where I haven't been very good at updating my calendar. It's kind of a mess. <laughs> you think I'd still be in Vietnam or something, but um, um, so that's my website uh, on Instagram and Twitter. I'm at power eat. And certainly on Facebook, it's Dr. Susan Kleiner. Um, you know, you're going to see a lot of the whole grain bread that I've been baking on May 16th. Um, you know, with the movement of conferences virtual, it's really cool. You can get to all these conferences that we never would have gotten to. And so the North Central region of NSCA is doing an online virtual conference um, and, and the nutri three nutrition speakers at a conference like that is a big deal. So we've yeah. got Dr. Lane Norton is speaking uh, Dr. Jose Antonio is speaking. I am speaking, uh, and um, and then uh, a, a host of other really awesome um, people speaking. So I just posted this cool graphic uh, that they sent out uh, this morning on uh, my Dr. Susan Kleiner uh, Facebook page and on Instagram. So. Um, yeah, May 16th, register for that. It, it's an all day conference that should be awesome. We'll get that linked up in the show notes here and then we'll, we'll pitch that out as well. We'll make sure we drop this episode before that happens so that people can be directed onto that. So we can, we can get that going for you. Yeah. Awesome. Cool. Well, hey, like I said, we really appreciate it. And, uh, thanks again for connecting with us and looking forward to, to staying in touch. Yeah, wonderful to meet you guys. And I do look forward to the day we can meet in person and, and you know, do some work together. That would be fun. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. All right. All right. Well, enjoy the rest of your Friday and, and I'll, I'll shoot you all the links and stuff too. So awesome. Thanks. Take care. Right. See ya. Bye.